The following title is called Human Nature in its Fourfold State by Thomas Boston. There's a sad alteration, an astonishing overturning in the nature of man. Where at first there was nothing evil, now there is nothing good. In treating on this doctrine, I shall first confirm it. Number two, represent this corruption of nature in its several parts. Show you how man's nature comes to be thus corrupted, and then apply this doctrine. First, I shall confirm the doctrine of the corruption of human nature. I shall hold a mirror to your eyes, in which you may see your sinful nature, which, though God takes particular notice of it, many quite overlook it. Here we shall consult the word of God in men's experience and observation. For the proof of this in scripture, consider how the scripture takes particular notice of fallen man's communicating his image to his posterity, Genesis 5.3. Adam begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Compare with this the first verse of that chapter. In the day that God created man... In the likeness of God made he him. Behold here how the image after which man was made and the image after which he was begotten are opposed. Man was created in the likeness of God. That is, a holy and righteous God made a holy and righteous creature. But fallen Adam begat a son, not in the likeness of God, but in his own likeness. That is, corrupt sinful Adam begat a corrupt sinful son. For as the image of God bore righteousness and immortality in it, as was shown before, so this image of fallen Adam bore corruption and death in it. 1 Corinthians 15:49 and 50 Moses, in that fifth chapter of Genesis, given us the first bill of mortality that there was ever in the world, ushers it in with this, a dying Adam begat mortals. Having sinned, he became mortal, according to the threatening. And so he begat a son in its own likeness, and therefore mortal. Thus sin and death passed upon all. Doubtless he begat both Cain and Abel in its own likeness, as well as Seth. But it is not recorded of Abel, because he left no children behind him, and his becoming the first sacrifice to death in the world was a sufficient document of it. Nor of Cain, to whom it might have been thought peculiar, because of its monstrous wickedness, and besides his posterity was drowned in the flood. But it is recorded of Seth, because he was the father of the holy seed, and from him all mankind since the flood have descended and fallen Adam's own likeness with them. Number two, it appears from that text of scripture in Job 14, verse 4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one. Her first parents were unclean. How can they be clean? How could our immediate parents be clean? How can our children be so? The uncleanness here referred to as a sinful uncleanness, for it is such as makes man's days full of trouble. And it is natural, being derived from unclean parents. Man is born of a woman, verse 1. And how can he be clean that is born of a woman, Job 25, verse 4. The omnipotent God, whose power is not here challenged, could bring a clean thing out of an unclean, and so did in the case of the man Christ, but no other being can. Every person who is born according to the course of nature is born unclean. If the root is corrupt, so must the branches be. 
neither is a man tormented, though the parents be sanctified, for they are but holy in part, and that by grace, not by nature. And they beget children as sinful men, not as holy men. Therefore, as the circumcised parent begets an uncircumcised child, and after the purest grain is sown, we reap chaff with the corn. So the holiest parent begets unholy children, and cannot communicate their grace to them as they do their natures, which many godly parents find true in their sad experience. Number three, consider the confession of the psalmist David in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here he ascends from his actual sin to the fountain of it, namely, corrupt nature. He was a man according to God's own heart, but from the beginning it was not so with him. He was begotten in lawful marriage, but when the lump was shaken in the womb, it was a sinful lump. Hence the corruption of nature is called the old man, being as old as ourselves, older than grace, even in those that are sanctified from the womb. Number four. Here are Lord's determination of the point in John 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Behold the universal corruption of mankind. All are flesh. Not that all are frail, though that is a sad truth, too. Yes, and our natural frailty is an evidence of our natural corruption. But that is not the sense of the text. The meaning of it is, all are corrupt and sinful. And that, naturally. Hence our Lord argues that because they are flesh, therefore they must be born again, or else they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verses 3 to 5. And as the corruption of our nature shows the absolute necessity of regeneration, so the absolute necessity of regeneration plainly proves the corruption of our nature. For why should a man need a second birth if his nature were not quite marred in his first birth? Number five. Man certainly is sunk very low now in comparison to what he once was. God made him a, but a little lower than the angels, but now we find him likened to the beasts that perish. He hearkened to a brute and has now become like one of them. Like Nebuchadnezzar, his portion in its natural state is with the beasts, minding only earthly things, Philippians 3.19. Nay, brutes in some sort have the advantage of the natural man who has sunk a degree below them. He is more intelligent of what concerns him most than the stork or the turtle dove or the crane or the swallow. And what is for their interest, Jeremiah 8 verse 7. He is more stupid than the ox or donkey, Isaiah 1.3. I find him sent to school to learn of the ant, which has no guide or leader to go before her, no overseer or officer to compel or stir her up to work, no ruler, but may do as she wills, being under the dominion of none, yet provides her food in the summer and harvest, Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 8. Well, the natural man has all these, and yet exposes himself to eternal starving. Nay, more than all this, the scripture holds out to the natural man. Not only is lacking the good qualities of these creatures, but is a compound of the evil qualities of the worst of the creatures, in whom the fierceness of the lion, the craft of the fox, the unteachableness of the wild donkey, the filthiness of the dog and swine, the poison of the asp, and such like, meet together. Truth itself calls them serpents, 
a generation of vipers. Yes, more even children of the devil. Matthew 23, verse 33, John 8, verse 44. Surely then man's nature is miserably corrupted. Number six, we are by nature the children of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3. We are worthy of and liable to the wrath of God, and is by nature. Therefore, doubtless, we are by nature sinful creatures. We are condemned before we have done good or evil, under the curse, before we know what it is. But will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Amos 3, verse 4. That is, will the holy and just God roar in his wrath against man if he be not by his sin made a prey for his wrath? No, he will not. He cannot. Let us conclude then that according to the word of God, man's nature is a corrupt nature. If we consult our experience and observe the case of the world, and know things that are obvious to any person who will not shut his eyes against clear light, we shall quickly perceive such fruits as discover this root of bitterness. I shall propose a few things that may serve to convince us in this point. First, who does not see a flood of miseries overflow in the world? Where can a man go where he shall not dip his foot, if he does not go over head and ears in it? Everyone at home and abroad, in city and country, in palaces and cottages, is groaning under some one thing or other, ungrateful to him. Some are oppressed with poverty. Some are chastened with sickness and pain. Some are lamenting their losses. Everyone has a cross of one sort or another. No man's condition is so soft, but there is some thorn of uneasiness in it. At length, death. The wages of sin comes after these its harbingers and sweeps all away. Now what but sin has opened the sluice of sorrow? There is not a complaint nor a sigh heard in the world, nor a tear that falls from her eye. But it is an evidence that man is fallen as a star from heaven. For God distributes sorrows in his anger, Job 21, verse 17. This is a plain proof of the corruption of nature, forasmuch as those who have not yet actually sinned have their share of these sorrows. Yes, and draw their first breath in the world weeping, as if they knew this world at first sight to be a bokeem, the place of weepers, their graves of the smallest as well as of the largest size in the churchyard. And there are never lacking some in the world who are like Rachel weeping for their children because they are not. Matthew 2 verse 18. Number 2. Observe how early this corruption of nature begins to appear in young ones. Solomon observes that even a child is known by his doings. Proverbs 20 verse 11. It may soon be discerned what way the bias of the heart lies. Do not the children have fallen at him before they can go alone, follow their father's footsteps? What a vast deal of little pride, ambition, sinful curiosity, vanity, willfulness, and averseness to good appears in them. And when they creep out of infancy, there is a necessity of using the rod of correction to drive away the foolishness which is bound in their hearts, Proverbs 20, verse 15 which shows that if grace does not prevail, the child will be as Ishmael, a wild ass man, as the word is in Genesis sixteen twelve. Number three, take a view of the manifold gross outbreakings of sin in the world. The wickedness of man is yet great in the earth. Behold your bitter fruits of the corruption of our nature, Hosea 4, verse 2. 
by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out. Like the breaking forth of waters and blood touches blood. The world is filled with filthiness and all manner of lewdness, wickedness, and profanity. From whence comes the deluge of sin on the earth, but from the breaking up of the fountains of the great deep. The heart of man, out of which proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murder, thefts, covetousness, and so on. Mark 7, verses 21 and 22. You will, it may be, thank God with a whole heart that you are not like other men. And indeed, you have more reason for it than I fear you are aware of. For as in water face answers to face, so the heart of man to man, Proverbs 28, verse 19. As looking into the clear water, you see your own face. So looking into your heart, you may see other men's there. And looking into other men's in them, you may see your own. So that the most vile and profane wretches who are in the world should serve you for a mirror in which you ought to discern the corruption of your own nature. And if you were to do so, you would, with the heart truly touched, thank God and not yourselves, indeed, that you are not as other men in your lives, saying that the corruption of nature is the same in you as in them. Number four, cast your eye upon those terrible convulsions which the world is thrown into by the lusts of men. Lions don't make a prey of lions, nor wolves of wolves. But men are turned to lions and wolves to one another, biting and devouring one another. Upon how slight occasions will men sheath their swords into one another? The world is a wilderness where the clearest fire that men can carry about with them will not frighten away the wild beasts that inhabit it. And that because they are men and not brutes, but one way or other they will be wounded. Since Cain shed the blood of Abel, the earth has been turned into a slaughterhouse, and the chase has been continued. Since Nimrod began his hunting on the earth, as in the sea, the greater, still devouring the lesser. When we see the world in such a ferment, everyone attacking another with words or swords, we may conclude there is an evil spirit among them. These violent heats among Adam's sons show the whole body to be distempered, the whole head to be sick, and the whole heart to be faint. They surely proceed from an inward cause, James 4, verse 1. Lusts, to warn our members. Number 5. Consider the necessity of human laws, guarded by tears and punishments, to which we may apply what the Apostle says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 9, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners. Man was made for society, and God himself said to the first man when he had created him, that it was not fit he should be alone. Yet, the case is such now, that in society, he must be hedged in with thorns, and that from this we may the better see the corruption of man's nature. Let us consider. Every man naturally loves to be at full liberty himself, to have his own will for his law. And if he were to follow his natural inclinations, he would devote himself out of the reach of all laws, divine and human, and some, the power of whose hands has been answerable to their natural inclination, have indeed made themselves absolute and above laws, agreeable to man's monstrous design at first, to be as God's, Genesis 3, 5. Yet, 
There is no man that would willingly adventure to live in a lawless society. Therefore, even pirates and robbers have laws among themselves, though the whole society casts off all respect to law and right. Thus men discover themselves to be conscious of the corruption of nature, not daring to trust one another, but upon security. Number three. However dangerous it is to break through the hedge, yet the violence of lust makes many daily adventure to run the risk. They will not only sacrifice their credit and conscience, which last is lightly esteemed in the world, but for the pleasures of a few moments, immediately followed with terror from within, they will lay themselves open to a violent death by the laws of the land in which they live. The laws are often made to yield to men's lusts. Sometimes whole societies run into such extravagances that, like a company of prisoners, they break off their fetters and put their guard to flight. And a voice of laws cannot be heard for the noise of arms. And seldom is there a time in which there are not some people so great and daring that the laws dare not look their impetuous lusts in the face. Which made, David say, in the case of Joab, who had murdered Abner, these men, the sons of Zariah, are too hard for me. Second Samuel 3, verse 39. Lusts sometimes grow too strong for laws, so that the laws become slack. It's a pulse of a dying man. Habakkuk 1, 3 and 4. Consider what necessity often appears of amending old laws and making new ones, which have their rise from new crimes, of which man's nature is very fruitful. There would be no need of mending a hedge if men were not like unruly beasts still breaking it down. It is astonishing to see what a figure the Israelites, who were separated to God from among all the nations of the earth, make in their history, what horrible confusions were among them, when there was no king in Israel, as you may see from the 18th to the 21st chapter of the book of Judges. How hard it was to reform them when they had the best of magistrates, and how quickly they turned aside again when they got wicked rulers. I cannot but think that one great design of that sacred history was to discover the corruption of man's nature, the absolute need of the Messiah and his grace, and that we ought in reading it to improve it to that end. How cutting is that word which the Lord has to Samuel concerning Saul, 1 Samuel 9, verse 17. The same shall reign over, or as the word is in the original, shall restrain my people. Oh, the corruption of man's nature, the awe and dread of the God of heaven restrains him not, but they must have gods on earth to do it, to put them to shame, Judges 18, verse 7. Consider the remains of that natural corruption in the saints. Though grace is entered, yet corruption is not expelled. Though they have got the new creature, yet much of the old corrupt nature remains, and they struggle together within them as the twins in Rebecca's womb. Galatians 5 verse 17. They find it present with them at all times and in all places, even in the most retired corners. If a man has a troublesome neighbor, he may move. If he has an ill servant, he may put him away at the term. If he has a bad companion, he may sometimes leave the house and be free from molestation that way. But should the saint go into a wilderness or set up his tent on some remote rock in the sea where never a foot of man, beast, or fowl had touched, 
dare. His corrupt heart will be with him. Should he be with Paul, caught up to the third heavens, it will come back with him. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. It follows him. As the shadow does the body, it makes a blot in the fairest line he can draw. It is like the fig tree on the wall, which however nearly it was cut, yet still it grew, until the wall was thrown down. For the roots of it are fixed in the heart. While the saint is in the world as with bands of iron and brass, it is especially active when he would do good. Romans 7 verse 21. Then the fowls come down upon the carcasses. Hence often in holy duties the spirit of a saint is aware evaporates and he is left before he is aware, like McCall with an image in the bed instead of a husband. I don't need to stand to prove to the godly the corruption of nature in them, for they groan under it, and to prove it to them were to hold out a candle to let them see the sun. It's for the wicked, they are ready to account molehills and the saints as big as mountains if not reckon them all to be hypocrites. But consider these few things on this head. 1. If it be thus in the green tree, how must it be in the dry? The saints are not born saints, but made so by the power of regenerating grace. Have they got a new nature, and yet the old remains with them? How great must that corruption be in others in whom there is no grace? Number 2. The saints groan under it as a heavy burden. Hear the apostle in Romans 7 verse 24. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But though the carnal man lives at ease and quiet, and the corruption of nature is not his burden, is he therefore free from it? No. No. It is because he is dead that he feels not the sinking weight. Many a groan is heard from a sick bed, but never any from a grave. In the saint... As in the sick man, there is a mighty struggle, life and death, striving for the mastery. But in a natural man, as in a dead corpse, there is no noise, because death bears full sway. Number three, the godly man resists the old corrupt nature. He strives to mortify it, yet it remains. He endeavors to starve it, and by that means to weaken it, yet... It is active. How must it spread then and strengthen itself in that soul where it is not starved, but fed? And this is the case of all the unregenerate who make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. If the garden of the diligent affords them new work daily, in cutting off and rooting up, surely that of the sluggard must needs be all grown over with thorns. I shall add but one observation more, and that is that in every man naturally the image of fallen Adam appears. Some children, by the features and lineaments of their face, do as it were father themselves, and thus we resemble our first parents. Every one of us bears the image and impression of the fall upon him. And to evince the truth of this, I appeal to the consciences of all in these following particulars. First, is not sinful curiosity natural to us? And is not this a print of Adam's image? Genesis 3 verse 6. Is not man naturally much more desirous to know new things than to practice old known truths? How much like old Adam do we look in this eagerness for novelties and disrelish of old solid doctrines? We seek after knowledge rather than holiness and study most and know those things which are least edifying. 
Our wild and roving fancies need a bridle to curb them, while good solid affections must be quickened and spurred on. Number two. If the Lord by his holy law and wise providence puts a restraint upon us to keep us back from anything, does not that restraint wet the edge of our natural inclinations and makes us so much the keener in our desires? And in this do we not betray it plainly that we are Adam's children? I think this cannot be denied for daily observation evinces that it is a natural Principle that stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Proverbs 9, verse 17. The very heathen were convinced that man was possessed with the spirit of contradiction, though they knew not the spring of it. How often do men let themselves loose and know things in which had God left them at liberty, they would abound up themselves. But corrupt nature takes a pleasure in the very jumping over the hedge. And is it not a repeating of our father's folly that men will rather climb for forbidden fruit than gather what is shaken off the tree of good providence to them, when they have God's express allowance for it? Which of all the children of Adam is not naturally disposed to hear the instruction that causes to err? And was not this a rock our first parents split upon? How apt is weak man ever since that time to parley with temptations? God speaks once, yes, twice. Yet man perceives it not, Job thirty-three fourteen. But he readily listens to Satan. Men might often come fair off if they would dismiss temptations with abhorrence when first they appear. If they would nip them in the bud, they would soon die away. But alas, though we see the train coming at us, yet we stand until it arrives, and we are blown up with its force. Number four, do not the eyes in your head often blind the eyes of the mind? And was not this a very case of her first parents? Genesis 3, verse 6. Man is never more blind than when he is looking on the objects that are most pleasing to sense. Since the eyes of her first parents were open to the forbidden fruit, men's eyes have been the gates of destruction to their souls, at which impure imaginations and sinful desires have entered the heart to the wounding of the soul wasting of the conscience, and bringing dismal effects sometimes on whole societies, as in Achan's case, Joshua 7.21. Holy Job was aware of the danger from these two little rolling bodies, which a very small splinter of wood can make useless. I made a covenant with mine eye, Job 31, verse 1. Is it not natural to us to care for the body even at the expense of the soul? This is one ingredient in the sin of our first parents, Genesis 3, 6. How happy might we be if we were but half the pains about our souls that we bestow upon our bodies? If that question, what must I do to be saved, ran but near as often through our minds as these questions, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? How shall we be clothed? Matthew 6, 31 then many a hopeless case would become very hopeful. But the truth is, most men live as if there were nothing but a lump of flesh, as if their soul served for no other use but like salt, to keep their body from corrupting their flesh. They mind the things of the flesh, Romans 8, verse 5, and they live after the flesh, verse 13. If the consent of the flesh be got to an action, the consent of the conscience is rarely waited for. Yes. The body is often served when the conscience has entered a protest against it. Number six is not everyone by nature 
discontented with his present lot in the world, or with some one thing or other in it. This is also Adam's case, Genesis 3, 5, and 6. Some one thing is always lacking, so that man is a creature given to changes. If any doubt this, let him look over all their enjoyment. And after a review of them, listen to their own hearts, and they will hear a secret murmuring for lack of something. Though perhaps if they considered the matter aright, they would see that it is better for them to lack than for them to have that something. Since the heart of our first parents flew out at their eyes on the forbidden fruit, and the night of darkness was by this brought on the world, their posterity of a natural disease which Solomon calls a wandering of the desire, or as the word is, the walking of your soul, Ecclesiastes 6, nine. This is a sort of diabolical trance in which the soul traverses the world, feeds itself with a thousand airy nothing, snatches at this and the other created excellency in imagination and desire. It goes here and there and everywhere except where it should go. And the soul is never cured of this disease until conquering grace brings it back to take up its everlasting rest in God through Christ. But until this be... If man were set again in paradise, the garden of the Lord, all the pleasures there would not keep him from looking, yes, and leaping over the hedge a second time. Are we not far more easily impressed and influenced by evil counsels and examples than by those that are good? You will see this was the ruin of Adam in Genesis 3.6. Evil example to this day is one of Satan's master devices to ruin men. Though we have by nature more of the fox than of the lamb, yet that ill property which some observe in this creature, namely, that if one lamb skips into a water, the rest will suddenly follow, may be observed also in the disposition of the children of men, to whom it is very natural to embrace an evil way, because they see others in it before them. Ill example has frequently the force of a violent strain, to carry us over plain duty, but especially if the example be given by those who bear a great affliction to our affection, in that case blinds our judgment, and what we should abhor in others is complied with to humor them. Nothing is more plain than that generally men choose rather to do what the most do than what the best do. Who of all of Adam's sons needs to be taught the art of sewing fig leaves together to cover their nakedness? When we have ruined ourselves and made ourselves naked to our shame, we naturally seek to help others by ourselves. Many poor contrivances are employed, as silly and insignificant as Adam's fig leaves. What pains are men at to cover their sin from their own conscience and to draw all their fair colors upon it that they can. And when once convictions are fastened upon them so that they cannot but see themselves naked, it is as natural for them to attempt to cover it by self-deceit as for fish to swim in water, birds to fly in the air. Therefore, the first question of the convinced is, What shall we do? Acts 2, verse 37. How shall we qualify ourselves? What shall we perform? Not considering that the new creature is God's own workmanship, or deed, Ephesians 2, 10. Any more than Adam considered and thought of being clothed with the skins of sacrifices, Genesis three twenty one. Do not Adam's children naturally follow his footsteps in hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord, Genesis 3, verse 8. We are quite as blind in this manner as he was. 
who thought to hide himself from the presence of God among the shady trees of the garden. We are very apt to promise ourselves more security in a secret sin than in one that is openly committed. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, Now I shall see me. Job 24.15 Men will freely do that in secret, which they would be ashamed to do in the presence of a child, as if darkness could hide from the all-seeing God. Are we not naturally careless of communion with God? Yes, and averse to it. Never was there any communion between God and Adam's children, where the Lord himself had not the first word. If he were to let them alone, they would never inquire after him. Isaiah 57, verse 17. I hid myself. Did he seek after a hiding God? Very far from it. He went on in the way of his heart. Number 10. Although their men to confess sin, to take guilt and shame to themselves, was it not thus in the case before us? Genesis 3.10. Adam confessed his nakedness, which could not be denied but says not one word of his sin. The reason of it was he would gladly have hid it if he could. It is as natural for us to hide sin as to commit it. Many sad instances thereof we have in this world, but a far clearer proof of it we shall get to the day of judgment, the day in which God will judge the secrets of men. Many a foul mouth will then be seen, which is now wiped and says, I've done no wickedness. Proverbs 30, verse 20. Is it not natural for us to extenuate our sin and transfer the guilt upon others? When God examined our guilty first parents, did not Adam lay the blame on the woman? And did not the woman lay the blame on the serpent? Adam's children need not be taught this hellish policy, for before they can well speak, if they cannot get the fact denied, they will cunningly lisp out something to lessen their fault and laid the blame upon another. Nay, so natural is this to men that, in the greatest sins, they will lay the fault upon God himself. They will blaspheme his holy providence under the mistaken name of misfortune or bad luck, and by this lay the blame of their sin at heaven's door. And was not this one of Adam's tricks after his fall, Genesis 3.12? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Observe the order of the speech. He makes his apology in the first place, and then comes his confession. His apology is long, but his confession very short. It is all comprehended in one word, and I did eat. How pointed and distinct is his apology, as if he was afraid his meaning should have been mistaken. The woman, he says, or that woman, as if he would have pointed a judge to his own works, of which we read in Genesis 2, verse 22. There was but one woman then in the world, so that one would think he needed not to have been so exact in pointing at her. Yet, she is as carefully marked out in his defense as if there had been ten thousand women. The woman whom you gave me, here he speaks as if he'd have been ruined with God's gift. And to make the gift look the blacker, it is added to all this, whom you gave to be with me, as my constant companion, to stand by me as a helper. This looks as if Adam would have fathered an ill design upon the Lord and given him this gift. 
And after all, there is no demonstrative here. Before the sentence is complete, he doesn't say, the woman gave me, but the woman, she gave me, emphatically, as if he had said, she, even she, gave me the tree. This much for his apology, but his confession is quickly over in one word, as he spoke it. And I did eat. There is nothing here to point out himself, and as little to show what he had eaten. How natural is this black art to Adam's posterity? He who runs may read it. So universally does Solomon's observation hold true in Proverbs 19, verse 3. The foolishness of man perverts his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. Let us then call fallen Adam, Father. Let us not deny the relation sin we bear his image. To sum up this point sufficiently, confirmed by concurring evidence from the Lord's Word, our own experience and observation, let us be persuaded to believe the doctrine of the corruption of our nature. And look to the second Adam, the blessed Jesus, for the application of his precious blood to remove the guilt of our sin, and for the efficacy of his Holy Spirit to make us new creatures, knowing that, except we be born again, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Thomas Boston, Human Nature in His Fourfold State.